I like to liken this business to throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. We make a lot of stuff, a lot of different kinds of things, and when it works, it's cookie cutter, it's replicate. Rinse, repeat, do it again. Same story, different actors, slightly different twist, but it's really kind of the same thing, cookie cutter over and over, and once in a while you get an anomaly. Choose not to live in a world of filters. Realize your mistakes, set the foundation for your success. Get some wins. Knucklehead Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Knucklehead Podcast. Uh, this is uh, this is your resident knucklehead, Stephen. Honored to uh, honored to have our next guest, who came in all the way from Hollywood. I'm kidding. He's still there. He's he's actually in Hollywood. I'm still talking to you from outside of Dallas. Um, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking some time. I'm excited to get a conversation going with folks who uh, who think a little bit differently. And quite frankly, in in an area like you live in right now, man, I, I got to be honest, from the outside looking in, I would think Hollywood needs a a, um, a lot of people who think differently than what the status quo is. Uh, maybe you can agree or disagree, but I'm, I'm interested to have a conversation. So, Tim, I uh, welcome to the show. How are you? Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And you're right. There's a lot of there's a need for thinking outside of the box, but that's tough in this industry. I'll tell you that. So, Tim, I'm going to butcher your last name. So, folks that uh, that typically laugh like whenever I butcher somebody's last name, it's Tim Tora Tora or Tortora, correct? Yeah, correct. Just like that, Tortora. Simple. Okay, all right. I appreciate that. Okay, so so simple. So you're joining us from from Hollywood, um, and you know, whenever we started this podcast, one of the first folks that we had. They were somewhat of a celebrity, right? They they they've starred on Discovery Channel series before. They had, you know, they had they had achieved a certain amount of success uh, in their respective field. They were professional athlete. They spent some time in the military. Uh, so let's let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room that folks like to be entertained. And in the world of Hollywood, you, there's there's entertaining things that take place. A lot yeah. of them are dramatized. Some of them are manufactured, but some of them are are legitimate. Le- there's legitimate storylines that are crafted and and produced in uh, in these entertaining pictures. However, there's there's this need now, at least in today's world, where everybody wants to acknowledge, um, I guess a, a a smaller group or a minority type group. And I'm curious, you know, based off of the the need to want to do that, is something being being sacrificed from an entertainment standpoint to to try to meet all these needs that are out there. I know I'm kind of hitting you right upside the head with a, a question that always comes up. I mean, the, no, not at all. The light year, the light year question is what is what spurred some of this conversation because it did less than stellar in terms of their opening box office this past weekend. Yeah, I, I honestly, I think they were kind of expecting that because they were throwing out a seventy-five million dollar weekend number a week and a half, two weeks ago, which was kind of odd to me. So. I think the studio knew it wasn't going to play. It wasn't going to, it wasn't tracking well is the term in the industry. Um, I think that has more to do with the picture than it has to do with diversity. And to answer your question, I don't think diversity has, or the, the inclusion that we're seeing in the industry, I don't think it's run its course as far as the, uh, the, the, the consumer base choosing to buy into it or not. And that's what's happening. The industry has said, we're going to do this diverse thing. We're going to represent. And uh, consumers haven't said, no, we're not interested yet. They may, 
We will see. It probably will be another 12 or 24 months before that comes. But I don't really think that Buzz Lightyear reaction or the lack of box office is a reflection of um, of the diversity and the noise that's been made around it. I think it has more to do with the studio producing a picture that they thought probably wasn't going to work and probably wasn't going to generate revenue. That's fair. That's a fair assessment. All right. So, so Tim, I appreciate that answer and I appreciate, quite frankly, your perspective because you're in the industry and I understand you got to get along to go along in some cases. I mean, you're, 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 you have your, your, personal view. You have your, your business view. You also have the view of, of what keeps your phone ringing and, and keeps you involved in the industry. Yeah. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta tread lightly in some of these cases. I've been, you know, one of those individuals who has said something and stepped on it a few times. Diversity and inclusion is not necessarily a new topic. It's been around for some time. Um, when it comes yes. to entertainment, w- w- help me understand how entertainment's changed, though, given that diversity seems to be louder now than what it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Well, it's, I mean, the diversity conversation has been going on in the background for at least five years, maybe as many as eight. And the conversation was uh, talking to a client of mine who represents a bunch of writers uh, and directors, and they're a management firm. And uh, the conversation from the studio was, you know, we got enough white guys over 50. We'd like to see more women, uh, other writers of color. And that was a conversation that's been going on long before 2020 and the riots that came during that period in the pandemic. So diversity is not a new concept. It's been happening. It's been going on for a while. It was accelerated, certainly. What you're seeing on the front end is dramatic change there. You're seeing a lot more faces of diversity on the screen where you didn't five years ago. It was pretty much happening in the background. And I think um, it, I think we'll see it pretty much the way it is currently. And it's been going, you know, Hollywood's always on the front end of that kind of stuff as far as the social culture war, for lack of a better term. But, you know... Uh, at some point, I think it'll seek a, a level and it will probably calm down. It's making a lot of people really angry outside. And I'm from the inside. You know, you just keep your head down, do the job and do whatever people gravitate to. When I say people, meaning consumers, this is a really tough business making content. And I don't love that term for movies and television, but making movies and TV, you are asking people to open their wallet and pay you for something you make. That is a hard proposition. It's always been. There's a ton of free content, a ton of free stuff everywhere. I lose hours a week uh, on TikTok and YouTube and places like that, and I don't pay for it. And the same is true of people of all age categories. So we have to make stuff that is compelling to people to open their wallet and pay for it. And if we don't, this industry changes course really fast. We make we release four or five movies every single week, 52 weeks a year. We get feedback instantly. We, all of our product has a three-day shelf life. Comes out Friday. We know whether or not Sunday, by some, by really Friday at 6 p.m., whether or not that movie is going to recoup its cost for the rest of time, for the next 20 or 30 years. That very It's very uncommon where something comes out of the woodwork like a Frozen in the Disney studio was like, holy cow, we could have made so much more money on that one had we paid attention. Does happen very infrequently. Do you feel like so? I gotta, I gotta hover over that point just for a second. There's a really interesting book where it's it's called How to Measure Anything. I don't know if you can hear me. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Can you? Okay. I can. How to measure anything? Yeah. And so that particular book, 
he, he talks about just something as small as five data points can be up to upwards of 93% accurate as, you know, a, a multi-thousand dollar product oriented, you know, audience engaging um, consumer research project. Yeah. And so, you know, it, does that mean yeah. that, that the analytics behind some of what you're talking about in terms of the curation of content has, has been just that much better or dialed in or, or is are lean, some of these lean processes and systems affecting how content gets created there or help me a little bit understand the design process in, in the use of analytics using your point about feedback is, is relatively quick. Right. So the analytics, there really isn't analytics in the way that other industries operate. There's plenty of them that tell us a lot, but what it tells us everything is cash and eyeballs and viewers. That tells us a lot. Technology has made the counting of eyeballs and the number of eyeballs at a granular level. It used to just be Nielsen's, right? It used to just be box office as far as how we got data. Now we get much deeper, more introspective and, um, you know, it tells us more by zip code how well things are going, right? Um, but we used to get that same data 25, 30 years ago when I was working in, um, in at an ad agency for Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures. We knew on by, literally, we'd get, we, not we, the studio would get from distribution how much money was made on a Friday night. You could take that number and you could extrapolate it out in the next three days and you would get pretty close within a few hundred thousand dollars how well a movie was going to do that weekend, which would then determine second weekend and third and fourth and so on and all the ancillary revenue points. So yes, there's better data. It's more refined. It gives us a lot more nuance about the data, but at the end of the day, it's all about who's paying and what are they paying for and what's going through the roof and what's cratering. And we see that every day. We see it every week. And we have a really, we, this industry has an ability to turn on a dime and switch gears and move into a different subject or category to, to exploit the, what's changing in the market, whereas most other businesses do not. And, and I like to liken this business to throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. We make a lot of stuff a lot of different kinds of things. And when it works, it's cookie cutter. It's replicate, rinse, repeat, do it again. Same story, different actors, slightly different twist, but it's really kind of the same thing, cookie cutter over and over. And once in a while, you get an anomaly. Pretty infrequent, but it does happen once in a while. It changes everything for the next five years. What got you started? What got you started doing this? This is this is fascinating to me that, that you could get into the business of creating and to a certain extent, not necessarily like the outcome in some cases. You just like the process of creating. And I'm, again, I'm generalizing, but I, what got you started in something like this? Sure. Well, uh, what got me started was uh, I was a drummer. This is the fourth grade. And I started playing and I was okay. I wasn't great. Uh, I went to college to be a musician. And as a musician, you had to learn how to A, sing, which I hated, and B, you had to learn how to uh, record, how to either be a player in a recording studio or how to actually record musicians. And that led to an internship at a recording studio, which then my career took off from there. And that I was 19. I was 19 years old. On my first day of uh, working in the studio, I was handed six, a stack of tape. There were two-inch tapes that went on a Studer recording deck, a uh, 24-track recorder from a man who was uh, the founding member of Berlin. He was a drummer. He handed me a stack of tapes and said, rack up number two. He handed me an eight ball of Coke and said, cut it up. And I went, what? 
And I was, I couldn't even buy beer, literally. I was not the guy who could go do the alcohol run. And I gave him a look and he looked at me and goes, I, I, the look I gave him of confusion was like, I don't know how to do this. I saw Scarface, but I don't know what to do. And uh, I'm not a drug user. And uh, he looked at me like, oh, right. You can't cut it up on the console. Oh, go out in the hallway and grab my gold record. You can cut it up on that and bring it on the console. And I was like, that was my, that was my first day in entertainment. So never got into that culture. It wasn't my thing. Lots of people around me, it was. But what I learned was how to be um, proficient and how to be fast and how to learn quickly and how to adapt at a very young age. And I kept that job for three or four years and moved up through the ranks from there. And that was my introduction. And I was always interested in entertainment since I was a kid. I grew up here. I grew up around it. It's, it's fascinating to hear how people honestly, which shapes their entire perspective on, you know, how things get started. So who inspired you then? I mean, at some point there's that moral compass that's back and, you know, that's kind of screaming from the back of your head. Don't, don't get right. involved in, um, I, I don't want to mischaracterize some of the drugs that you just talked about, but I, I don't, I, I have no experience in any of those things. So from what I understand, right. talking with folks who are in the entertainment business, some, sometimes that's, the source of people's inspiration, you know, that they, Jim, Jim Morrison comes to mind whenever he was, you know, writing sure. music. So, uh, but it was also part of his demise. So help me understand, you know, what was it that kind of sure. forced you to have, a, I guess, maybe some better decision-making processes when it came to, you know, what to expose yourself to and what not to. I, uh, you know, honestly, it was reading about Jim Morrison and Hendrix and Joplin. I was a child of the seventies and I grew up around drug culture. I grew up in Orange County, California with a bunch of freaking potheads and in high school. And I saw how it destroyed lives. I saw how people were dying around me in the media, not necessarily in my direct life, but I had seen all these careers that were ruined and stories of actors and musicians who blew up who were really famous and I just I just connected the dots I was like I I this is what I want to do I want to make a career out of this if I go down the path of drugs and alcohol it's going to blow up it's not going to be good and I never drank I never used drugs at work I smoked some weed when I was in high school actually some is an understatement I've smoked a lot of weed I drank a lot when I was in high school but when I got to my professional career as as college student, I started when I was a freshman in college. That's when my career really got going. And I put my, and I went through school and, and worked and, and did the school at the same time. So I just knew that I, this is what I wanted to do. And the people who blew up and ended got down that rabbit hole. And I was just like, I don't want to be that guy. I want to, I want to succeed. I'm not going to fail because of drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Well, it sounds as if the, so it's fascinating to hear about persistence and grit is to a certain extent kind of what fueled you to want to keep that, um, keep your head, so to speak. I mean, whenever it came to being around people in the industry who are you know, maybe, maybe made up a little bit differently than you, do you find that there's, there's, there, there's people who, who rise in the, in, I guess, different ranks. If you're a director or a producer or an executive producer that share those same mm. type of characteristics or am I off base in that assumption? 
No, there is a common thread in the people who succeed in this business, and it's a couple of things. Number one, they network. They network all the time. They do it in a way that doesn't feel sleazy, and they make friends with people who are in powerful places and people who are in key places to give them a job. That is the biggest thing. The day you stop networking is the day your career begins to atrophy. It's just that simple. And the other thing is they're professional. They show up on time. They show up, actually, they show up early. They do a good job. They do the best job they possibly can at the job they currently have. And they ask for more responsibility for the next job so that they can do that next job and and show the people, their sponsors in the room, that they are capable of being pulled up and move up, moving up into the next job. That's the common, those are the two common threads. And we call it three. Professionalism, doing the 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 highest level work you possibly can, showing up on time, and building your network. And in reverse order, building your network is the most important part of it. Fantastic. Our, our, our podcast is, is predicated based off of mistakes and screw-ups and how those mistakes and screw-ups, really, quite frankly, yeah. they, they they lead the way to your success. In Marine Corps, we have an adage. I, I like to use the term or excuse me, the, the analogy of your left and right lateral limits in, you know, in a firing range. So if you have your muzzle that's pointed towards whether your whether your fingers on the trigger or not, if that muzzle is pointed towards that left or right lateral limit, what's happening is you could potentially endanger somebody to your left and your right, whether your your fingers on the trigger or not. Right. So the responsibility is are you going to be able to adequately use that that piece of equipment safely in a way that's going to protect you and keep those around you safe. So it sounds as if your career is not that much different given the guidance that you I just heard you describe. So it sounds as if you know, it sounds as if um people who are who are uh who are creatives and who want to to tell a story they could use some 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 frameworks and decision making and processes and systems almost more so just because they're more apt to, to want to color outside the lines. Would you agree or disagree, I guess, with that summary? I, I think it's absolutely true. And as an executive who manages creatives, because there's creatives and there's people who manage creatives, sure. right? And they are they are different brains. They're different people. I, oh, I succeeded in my job and my part of it, which was finance and physical logistics for two reasons. Number one, I was good at it. And I realized at a young age what I was good at. And I laid into that. And I did a lot of it. And I did it over and over and over as much as I possibly could. And the second thing was, I knew what my limitations were. I know I'm the guy with the most obvious idea in the room. I'm never going to be Steven Soderbergh. I'm never going to be Darren Lindelof. I probably got his first name wrong. But anyway, <laughs> the guy who created Lost sure. and other yeah. amazing shows, Scorsese. I'm not that guy. Yeah. So I'm never going to be a creative. So I stay in my lane. But what I did learn, and I learned this from working for Oprah Winfrey, which was you have to let creatives spin out into the universe and then reel them back in. They're going to give you 100 ideas. 95 of them are going to be terrible ideas. And you got to figure out which ones are the five. And you let them you let them lay into those. And you got to try to figure out how to explain to them, look, man, you got 95 lousy ideas. Stop pushing them. Right. You have to do that in a way where they're coming along with you. This entertainment, I like to say entertainment's the last great dictatorship. And it's sort of true, especially for dictate for especially for directors, but it's also not true. Because you're hurting cats. You're pushing creative people around um around a field to get them to to fill in a puzzle. And if you don't fill in that puzzle in a way where they're bought in, it's gonna be crap. Or if you fill fill that puzzle in with 
a lot of consternation and hassle, it may be amazing, actually. It sucks getting across that puzzle with consternation. But I got to tell you, the best movies I've worked on were the hardest, the most contentious, with the greatest amount of fight and the greatest amount of confrontation I've ever done, ever worked on in my entire career. And I remember sitting, talking to Oprah, and I was. she said, what's your biggest complaint about working in entertainment? I said, the passionless morons who run the networks. And she goes, and I said, and she says on the other side, I said, the creatives who drive us out into the universe and make us crazy. She said, do you really want to be working with people who aren't those kinds of creatives? And I went, hmm. And she was 100% right. Those are the people who are interesting. And those are the ones you want to have around in your in your court. And uh, that's a thing. And you just have to figure out how to manage it and how to manage them. And it's it's a skill. It's something you learn over time. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear you describe the makeup of somebody who has that creative gift, right? So, you know, when it comes to, mm-hmm. when it comes to early on in your career, it sounds as if, I don't want to put words in your mouth here. So what I heard you say was you, you learned that that was your skill. You learned what you were not. You figured out what you were good at. I've, I've got to ask, was there a time yeah. though where you wanted to be this Scorsese? Like where, was there a time where you just, you like, I, yeah, I sure. stepped on it and I screwed up here. So therefore I did not do <laughs> like, can you help me understand kind of a time yes. where that happened? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. When I was a drummer, I was, you know, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a professional musician. I wanted to be a session player. I never really wanted to be a musician playing, uh, live music. I, to me, that was like the monkey with the cymbals going, it was just, you're doing the same goddamn thing every night, just playing the same fucking tunes. It's so annoying. I wanted to be a session player. The session players I saw come through the studio and I saw come through the program, the music program I was in. They practiced six hours a day. They were better than me. They could read the chart flawlessly and they could play with soul. I couldn't do that because I wasn't going to sit around and practice for six hours. I didn't want to do rudiments. I didn't, I wanted to play. I wanted to make music. I wanted to be in the creative part of it, but I didn't want to practice like those guys did. So I didn't succeed at that, at the highest level. And I wanted to. So I just decided that that wasn't going to be my path and I was going to have to find a different one. And, you know, I wouldn't, yeah, it was failure by definition, I suppose. I, I failed as a musician. I didn't become a professional musician, but I, I have worked around creatives and supported creatives my entire career in a way where I can be a part of the creation of music and movies and television. And that to me has been as rewarding and as fulfilling as actually making the content or making whatever it is we're working on. Fantastic. Well, I mean, I, it's interesting hearing that there's a correlation between musicians, artists, and producers, you know, similar to your, your industry that you're in and the folks that you've worked with, I'm sure have given you yeah. quite the breadth of experience from, from a perspective standpoint to talk about executives uh, at the networks to use your, you know, to use your, uh, let's just say that stakeholder descriptions and the folks who are behind the computers slamming on the yeah. keyboards, you know, uh, clicking the mouses that are yeah. actually making it happen. So let's, let's end, let's end our, our podcast true. with, uh, with this, because I, I like to share times that you screwed up or times that you, you know, that was painful and that visceral kind of gut feel of a screw up. And I'll share a story here real quick. And I've shared it a number of times on the podcast before. And that was, you know, I'm in the sales space. So we kind of live out on the edge and HR is a little bit more structured. They like to, you know, nurture folks along the way. 
you know, well, you can, you can nurture right. somebody to a certain extent if you're living on the edge as a sales rep, as you're developing talent and kind of bringing them along. And honestly, sometimes you screw up. You, you push somebody beyond what their capabilities are and they quit. And that, that doesn't, that doesn't go, yeah. that doesn't uh, go so well, over so well in HR. And, and I didn't like the reaction one time that an HR director had. And I, quite frankly, I, I thought I was texting my wife. I texted my wife something that was pretty colorful about the HR person. Turns out I was actually texting the HR person. And that, that, <laughs> oh, that screw up and that mistake was so, oh. it was so knee bucklingly awful to go through. And, and, and quite frankly, the pain that I had to put my family through to, just to kind of recoup things. It was just, it was a crazy experience. But do you have, you know, a situation yeah. where, you know, you're out there on the edge, you're kind of going, you know, Mach 10 with your hair on fire and you realize, oh crap, I completely screwed up. I, I, I stepped on somebody's ego, right? You know, I, I stepped on a, um, yeah. some ant piles and it was not necessarily a good feeling. Do you have a time where that's happened? Uh, one very vivid one comes to mind, which is I, I have said for a long time, what what I do for a living in finance and logistics, it, uh, the job, the definition of the job is a bully. My job is to say no to people. And the creative's job is to constantly push me to the point where I say yes, right? And my job is to constantly say no so that I can deliver something to a studio or a network on budget, on time, right? Um, there was a create, there was, well, not creator so much as there was a distributor we were working with and they owed us Oh, the agreement was when we submitted an invoice, they had 10 days to turn around and pay it. They were six months to a year late on this particular invoice. And it wasn't a trivial amount of money. It was like 60 or 70 grand. And uh, I was the bully. And I just, at one point, the the person I was talking to, I'm going to use the word term, the name Karen, just because it fits. Um, it's not her name. Uh, she kept saying, I don't, I don't feel like we're being billed for something that doesn't belong to us. And I'm like, Karen, I work in finance. You work in finance. I don't, I don't feel, I think pay the goddamn bill or tell me why it's fucking wrong and we'll fix it. And she hangs up on me, runs down the hall to the VP and he calls my boss, who's the CEO. Uh, and I was a CFO at the time, I think. Uh, and he said that the distributor, Karen's boss had banned me from ever talking to anybody at the distributor for the rest of time. I forget the guy's name at any rate. So the CEO called me up and goes, what happened? I told him the story, exact story I told you. And he said, he laughed and he goes, that's funny. Don't do it again. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. promise. Yeah, sure. And, you know, truthfully, what what mistake did I make? I, I got pissed. I got mad at her and I shouldn't have. I should have just been firm and uh, continued on the track I'd been for six months. I wasn't paid to be an asshole. I was paid to be a bully. There's a difference. And I was paid to be firm and consistent. And I crossed a line into being an asshole. And I shouldn't have said that to her. As funny as it is to tell someone who works in finance, stop feeling you should be thinking. Um, it's kind of funny when you think about it, but it's, it's, not, it's not kind. And ultimately, being kind is really all we have and being respectful is probably the better track 99% of the time. That's tough to disagree with that logic. I, I, uh, I appreciate you sharing that story. One, because it is kind of funny, <laughs> but it's also, it's also very unkind. I, I appreciate you, your, uh, the retro, in retrospect, looking back on it and, and being thoughtful in terms of, of what the right course of action was. So did they pay the bill? Right. 
They paid the bill a day later, and I've never talked to that distributor again. I was literally banned win, from Win-win. Win-win. Never talked to him. Bill paid. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it kind of yeah. was. Uh, she wound up leaving, and so did the VP, but, you know, whatever. It, it all worked is out what it is. for everyone. Is what it is. Well, I appreciate you, Tim, uh, being gracious with us. And patient also uh, on the front end with some of the audio challenges. So I, I appreciate you uh, sharing some stories. Uh, sounds like you've got a chance to, to rub your elbows with some some very successful titans in the industry. So um, I appreciate you blocking some time to talk to this knuckle dragon Marine. Uh, cause I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a Titan in the industry. My pleasure. I'm a Titan at this desk and that's about it. So even my wife, actually I come second or third. You know, so it just is what it is. I've worked with some amazing people and some big names, but you know what? It doesn't matter. They put their pants on the same way you and I do. They behave the same way. Um, they just figured out how to tap into a giant audience. And there's plenty of people who aren't famous who do just as good a job at whatever they do, whether it's the grip, electric camera on a set, whatever, um, you know, copywriters in your business, editors and folks you're working with. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a big name. You know, do the best job you possibly can. That's what I always say all the time. Yeah, that's it comes through in the way that you answer questions. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate your attention to detail and your time today, Tim. Uh for those of you who are like listening to, uh, to Knucklehead, we, we aim to get you podcasts every week. Uh, sometimes we, we do fairly well. Sometimes we crush it and sometimes we, we suck at it. That's because it's, it's because of this guy. That's on this side of the question. That's, that's, that's what happens. Tim, though, is there anything that you want to leave these folks with when it comes to when they make a mistake? Because then inevitably it will happen over the course of your professional career. Anything that you want to leave these folks with oh, yeah. on, how to, uh, on how to rebound when those things happen? Uh, I think the best way to rebound is to say, I'm sorry, I fucked up. Admit it to yourself, admit it to the people you're working with, and then apologize. That's all you can do. And learn from it. If you're making the same mistake two or three times, you're an idiot. You need to change something. If you're making it once and you think to yourself, oh man, this is coming down the road again, and you're thinking twice about doing it the way you did last time, that's progress and that's success. And that, I think, is is something you got to think about. Yep. Very practical sound in elementary um, elementary level <laughs> learning. You got to keep it. You got to keep that way. You know your audience there. This is Knuckle Dragon Marine right here. So uh, I scraped my knuckles on my way up the stairs a little yep. bit ago. So um, Tim, I appreciate you. We're all gonna make mistakes. Let them happen. We learn yep. from them. I agree with you there. Favorite favorite guitarist. Before we let you go, you you're talking about guitar quite a bit. Oh, Eddie Van Halen for sure. Okay, all right, very good. Cool. My wife would say. EVH. My wife would throw literally her keyboard at me if I said anything other than Jimi Hendrix. But I think that, you know, you know, <laughs> well, that, that kind of goes without saying. I think that's for sure. Easy it's not that he's not a great, amazing yeah. guitarist. Yeah. But I mean, Eddie Van Halen's easy, but um, he was Eddie Van Halen, David Lee Roth, Van Halen in general, honestly changed my life as a teenager. That and George Carlin. But it's it's a ridiculous story, but I heard David Lee Roth interviewed on a Jim Ladd show in the early 80s, and I went, oh, wait, you can be smart and a smartass and get a college degree? What? And that's why I went to college, because of David Lee Roth, believe it wow. or not. Wow. A little blast from the past there, my friend. And that, that trajectory, that change changed my life. Honestly, there's there's the what I call the the value of the dissenting voice or the, the underappreciated um, – Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, but just the underappreciated, uh, the underestimation of folks just because the, the book doesn't match the cover, right? If, if you think somebody's a, yeah. 
a rapper, for instance, or a musician that they are a less than or not an intellectual by any stretch of imagination, just hear them talk about process. And you'll, and in, in that discussion about process, it'll be revealed to you just quite frankly, how much more uh, capable they are than what you are. It's, it's, it's bizarre hearing conundrums and conversation all the time with people that you wouldn't expect. And they, and you get surprised all the time. It's like somebody told me a long time ago, yep. the more, you know, you realize the actual less, you know, and the less, you know, you realize the more other people do. So it's interesting how that works. It's so true. Well, I appreciate you, Tim. Um, the go other, ahead, go ahead. yeah, absolutely. I was going to add another axiom that you put that you just sort of went down, which is if there's something that you're seeing in a person in front of you that bothers you, it's probably a reflection of a behavior type you have that you don't like about yourself. Examine that more than you point fingers at the person you're you're not liking in front of you. Yep, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. All right, Tim, we're going to wrap with that. I appreciate you, buddy. Um, yep. We will talk to you soon. My Have pleasure. a good rest of the day. Those of you who like listening, go ahead. We'll talk to you soon. Take care, guys. Mm-hmm.